This is M.I.P. With Masamela Mafuma. Mark Thompson. Get woke. Joining us now, happy to have him back, Secretary of Transportation, Secretary Pete, Pete Buttigieg. Mr. Secretary, how are you today? Pretty good. Hope you're well. I'm, I'm well. So, uh, and I hope you are too. The, um, the House has voted. It's got to go to the Senate. How are we able to avoid a rail strike this weekend? Well, if, if the Senate acts and sends this bill to the president's desk, then we will be able to prevent a shutdown of the rail system that would have devastating consequences for uh, the U.S. economy. Uh, what took place today was that uh, Speaker Pelosi brought forward legislation and you saw a bipartisan vote on a piece of legislation that effectively locks in a tentative agreement that the uh, representatives of the companies and representatives of the labor unions reached a couple of months ago. Uh, that agreement isn't perfect, but uh, both the companies and uh, uh, the, the labor unions uh, moved a lot in order to reach that agreement. And uh, locking that in and moving forward on that uh, is the, the most straightforward way to prevent a shutdown that would uh, really lead to the shutdown of, of most of the economy. I mean, it's not just the, the rail, but everything that depends on rail, uh, whether we're talking about farms, whether we're talking about uh, water treatment plants that need chlorine that can only be uh, efficiently delivered by rail, uh, whether we're talking about uh, the auto industry that uh, often uh, only has a couple of days of parts on hand at any given facility and really counts on that, that rail system to move. There's no substitute for uh, a fully functioning rail system. And so this is about what it'll take to keep those trains moving so that the economy can keep moving too. Now, just to bring us up on the chronology, there was an agreement and then there was some walk back on the agreement, right? So if this this legislation, if it passes the Senate, what does it do in terms of the parties that um, had second thoughts about the September agreement? That's right. So uh, what, what happened was there was uh, there were three years that the uh, parties were working on this, came to an impasse, which triggered a process where a presidential emergency board uh, brought in a, a framework uh, for uh, what they recommended to resolve this issue. It included things like a 24% pay increase over five years. Uh, it included uh, uh, the additional of another personal uh, leave day uh, for employees and some other provisions having to do with, with health care. Uh, it, uh, again, wasn't perfect, but it was something that uh, the, the different parties could agree on. It went out for votes uh, with the uh, different labor unions involved, 12 different labor unions. The majority of them voted, the unions voted for it, but several uh, major ones did not uh, complete that ratification process favorably. And so uh, what that means is that uh, the only sure way to head off a, uh, a, a shutdown at this point is for Congress to act. And uh, what the vote did today is it paves the way, uh, provided that the Senate does the same later on this week, to get a bill to the president's desk that he can sign. It's all part of the Rail Labor Act, which uh, I believe dates back to the 20s, uh, that uh, has all of these special provisions to protect the economy uh, because of how important the rail, uh, uh, the rail industry is to the country, uh, to lock in those, those pay increases, those adjustments on, on things like leave, and uh, keep things moving in our economy. So it, 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 do we get the impression that once this goes through and if the Senate passes it, that the demand some of the unions had in terms of, I guess, the extra days of sick leave, sick leave and pay, how much of that will be met or will there, those still be issues that will need to be resolved? So a lot of workers have a concern that even when they have access in theory to sick days, and, and often we're talking about unpaid sick days even, 
that they're not able to actually use them uh, without getting some kind of disciplinary result. And that continues to be an issue and uh, will continue to be an issue uh, even uh, if, if this uh, legislation is, is successful. Now, as an administration, uh, as everybody hopefully knows, uh, we believe strongly in paid leave for all Americans, uh, not just any individual industry, but uh, every American worker. And the president has pressed proposals to get that done. We're going to continue uh, pushing for that to, to happen across the country. But right now, in terms of this situation and the threat to our economy, uh, the, the focus is on making sure that we don't find ourselves uh, in a matter of just a few days with shipments starting to shut down uh, just ahead of the Christmas season and with everything going on in our economy. And of course, this would affect both, obviously you, you alluded to freight. This affects both freight and passenger rail, does it not? That's right. Uh, there are many, uh, in, in fact, the, the majority of the miles of uh, passenger rail in this country uh, operate on the same railroad lines that uh, the, the freight, major freight uh, lines do. Now, the Northeast Corridor is an exception, so uh, this is not implicating uh, that uh, Boston, New York, Washington corridor, but for most of the rest of the country and some commuter rail lines, uh, this could involve a shutdown for them too. Amtrak would probably begin canceling bookings by uh, Monday or Tuesday so that uh, passengers don't get stranded. Uh, at least uh, that's kind of the timeline we talked about earlier. If, if the deadline is December 9th, uh, the uh, rail companies uh, and uh, uh, operators like Amtrak need to take steps several days ahead of that. And even those kinds of disruptions can take a while for our economy to recover from, which is why there really is a lot of urgency to uh, getting congressional action on this in the next few days. You feel confident about the Senate seeing this through as we close? Well, I think so, but uh, not taking anything for granted. Uh, you know, there was a strong bipartisan vote in the House that's encouraging, uh, but uh, th this still has to move through the Senate. And it's really important that there not be uh, uh, any kind of, uh, of, of the twists and turns that prolong things that we're, we're kind of used to in Washington right now, but there's just not enough time for that. Uh, we, we can't afford to have auto factories in America shutting down, to have farms unable to get their fertilizer, to have water treatment plants unable to get their chlorine. So uh, this has to be a moment when Congress works more quickly than Congress usually does. Uh, that happened in the House. We're urging for that to happen in the Senate too. And I do know that the president will act very quickly once a finished bill reaches his desk. Secretary Pete Buttigieg of the U.S. Department of Transportation. Secretary Pete, we thank you as always. Same here. Thanks for having me on. Just a week removed from the Thanksgiving holiday. Have it here with us. Our friend once again for our weekly edition of Thursday Coast, Marcos Melissas, the founder of Daily Coast, the largest online progressive community, the founder of Civics with a Q, and uh, the host of The Brief podcast. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, buddy, how was the holiday? Holiday was great. And um, I'm still basking in the glow of being right about the election. So, <laughs> Mark, we spent the whole year talking. You know, I kept saying, not going to be your typical midterm election. The dynamics are different. It's not going to be a referendum on Joe Biden because it's Donald Trump. Uh, the Supreme Court decision on abortion is going to motivate our side in a way that that they don't quite realize. And to the very few days before the election, the media kept insisting that there was going to be a red wave. They kept insisting that the issue of abortion had waned, which was the most ridiculous thing I'd ever seen. A bunch of white men pundits, they didn't care about abortion. So of course, nobody else cares about abortion. I mean, it's, um, and, uh, being on here, and Mark, remember, we kept, I kept saying, 
I'm not saying that the Democrats are going to win. I'm saying we don't see evidence of a red wave. And everything that I see points to a very, very close 50-50 election. And that's exactly what we got. You know, it's only about 30,000 votes total, the difference between a Democratic and a Republican held house. And those 30,000 votes were mostly in California, my state, in your state, New York, Mark. It was that close. And so it sort of, sort of validates not that, that people like me were peddling. People accused me and others like Simon Rosenberg and Joe Trippi and Tom Bonier. They accused us of dealing in hopium. Hopium is creating hope contrary to the evidence. And really what we were doing is we were looking at the data. And this is sort of like I, what I built Daily Coaster on, right? Mark, we've been talking about this for over a decade. Data. If you look at the data, odds are pretty good you're probably going to get the election right. And understanding the data can sometimes be wrong. We saw that in 2016 when Donald Trump uh, you know, was selected to the White House, won with, with a minority of the votes. But um, generally speaking, we had a lot of data this time. We had special elections. We had voter registration. We had early vote numbers. We had poll numbers. We, there was a lot for us to work with. And all of it said close election. That's what we got. So I'm still feeling kind of braggy about that. <laughs> if you would excuse no, me. No, that's fine. You were right. It's a good feeling. And, and, and I spoke to David near of Daily Coast Elections right before the holiday. He was with us. And David, and I, I said this to David, it's, it doesn't even feel like they won the house for some reason. You know, it, it, and this is the most non-feeling um, um, loss of the house, the most intangible <laughs> loss of the house I felt. I mean, because if somebody sneezes, you know, or somebody leaves or whatever, I mean, we can almost get it back. Um, what do you think about well, obviously, King Jeffries elected unanimously. Um, the House leadership is now either people of color or women, all the top positions. How does it? How do you think this is going to work out in terms of the speaker's election? Because anybody doesn't have to be a Republican elected speaker. I mean, if 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 we wanted to play with them, some of us might go over. Somebody was suggesting that earlier and vote for somebody other than Kevin McCarthy. I don't know, but. Um, that's not assured for Kevin McCarthy. No, you know, the last when when Paul Ryan was speaker, he was actually people may not have noticed or they may have forgotten. He was actually not the heir apparent at the time. The heir apparent to to uh, Boehner was McCarthy. He was he was his lieutenant. And yet he didn't get the votes. And Paul Ryan was a compromised candidate. And they had a much larger majority at that time. I think it was like a 30 seat majority. So here's McCarthy once again <laughs> coming in and there's a very real chance he's not going to end up speaker. And this is actually a fascinating situation. And, and Mark, I will, I will argue that um, this is better for the Democrats, that the Republicans have this very, very, I think it's a six-seat majority right now in the House. I would argue that actually that's better for them than to have the majority. Would it be nice? Keep investigations going, that sort of thing. But... The reason incumbent presidents almost always win, only three have lost in, in over, you know, the last hundred years. The reason incumbent presidents do so well is because they lose control of Congress in that midterm election, and then they can run against a do-nothing Congress. This is the playbook. This is, there's nothing 
every president does. Bill Clinton, remember, he was being he was being impeached and he ran against Congress in one re-election. Uh, Barack Obama, Democrats got crushed in 2010, had no problem winning re-election because he ran against uh, Congress. So you have this this dynamic where, OK, now the Democrats can point to the Republicans and say nothing's passing. Thing is that all of Biden's legislation, all his real agenda, anything that could have passed has already passed. There's things like obviously like D.C. statehood and voter rights, but that was going to die in the Senate anyway without us getting 52, without getting rid of the filibuster. So there was really nothing that House could do that would get through the Senate at this point. But the Senate can still approve judges. So the one thing Congress is still good for, we have control of that. Like if you have difference between holding the House or holding the Senate, the Senate is by far the most valuable chamber if you have the White House. So um, we can still get our judges and now we can run against. And you know, Republicans, their first, their first uh, press conference after the election, they were, it wasn't about inflation. It was not about gas prices. No, it was a Hunter Biden's laptop. So this is what they're going to talk about. So to get to your question, this is a very long about way to say is that um, McCarthy does not have the votes. The 20, I think 20 members of the Freedom Caucus have already said they will not vote for McCarthy. Now there's going to be horse trading. There's going to be arm twisting. There's going to be the, those sort of things. But he can only afford to, to lose six. And by all indications, as far as I can tell, 10 of them are solid, solid no's. Now, who would that compromise candidate be this time? I don't think that's so obvious. So I still think if you had to, if, you know, let me do odds. I'd say about a 65, 70% chance McCarthy twists enough arms, buys enough people off. But here's the, here's the um, possibilities. These are very real possibilities. One is that Republican moderates look at the concessions that, that McCarthy is giving to the Freedom Caucus and starts feeling really uncomfortable. Remember, about 25 of those Republicans sit in, in Biden districts right now. About 10 to 15 of them are in pretty solidly Biden districts in California and in New York, and their chances of surviving a presidential year um, election are pretty, pretty slim. So anything that says these guys voted with the Freedom Caucus in those campaigns, it's going to be political death for those guys. So they're going to be nervous. They have two choices. One is that those moderates can form a block with Democrats to elect a moderate Republican as Speaker of the House. And one of the names floated is Congressman Bacon of Nebraska's 2nd Congressional District. So he's already said, I'll do it if, if, if I'm tasked, if, um, if people want me to do it. So there's a chance. It's happening in the Alaska legislature, both the House and the Senate are controlled by by a caucus of moderate Democrat, sorry, moderate Republicans and Democrats. Even though Republicans have the majority both in the Alaska Senate and the House, it's not the Republican Party that is in control. It's this coalition. It's worked very, very, very well in Alaska. So that's a possibility. Second possibility is we're only talking six Republicans need to switch sides and then suddenly they could actually switch parties, right? It, depending on how bad it looks for them, how much the Freedom Caucus is getting, there's a, I mean, I would, I would make the chances, you know, two, 3%. I don't, I'm not going to say it's a big chance, but there's a chance that maybe Democrats can, can do, get some of these guys to switch parties. This is the only chance they're going to be in the House in two years. So 
switch parties and Democrats keep control. Not out of the realm of possibilities right now. So where we are right now is that even McCarthy has admitted he does not have the votes, but he's going to take it to a floor vote. He says he's pushing forward. He's going he's gonna to force the votes in the House. So once that happens, if the Freedom Caucus holds strong, who the heck knows? Or if McCarthy gives away, you know, just gives everything away to the Freedom Caucus, we may get some of these moderate Republicans starting to feel really, really uh, a little freaked out about their chances in two years if they play ball. So it's going to be kind of kind of interesting. And again, chances are it's going to be McCarthy. Chances are he's going to figure out what he needs to do to buy these people off. And he's and Republican moderates are not the most dependable of people. They they always seem to cave. But you never know. Things are interesting, and that's chaos. And then you contrast that with the Repu with the Democratic side, where Pelosi has been an incredible speaker, and she just masterfully, um, masterfully engineered the transition of power to a younger generation of uh, of leaders and. Uh, the contrast could not be uh, could not be any more stark. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, know, and, and it says a lot the way in which they did that and, and the way that that process happened um, by you know making that transition and um, allowing the new leadership um, to come forward. Um, very important. Now, moving on to George, what are, what are your thoughts about? the runoff, which is just, it's over in a few days. Yeah, I'm feeling really good. The early vote numbers are fantastic. And has civics, has civics done anything with that? I mean, we've been, we've been, we, we've, we've tracked, you know, we, yeah, we've been tracking that matchup all cycle and, and I don't have, I don't have the numbers in front of me and I, I, um, but it's been pretty consistent that, um, that Warnock, the Democrat has had a about two, three to four point lead against against um, against uh, Herschel Walker. Now, the thing is, that was the case before the election, right? A lot of it's going to depend on is turnout. Of course, turnout is is when things are this close, it all comes down to turnout. And I suspect that Republicans are going to have a hard time getting their people out to vote now. They did a decent job. Republicans did a decent job of getting people out for Kemp, the governor, and Raffensperger, the uh, secretary of state. And one of the reasons they were successful is that they were able to distance themselves from Trump. Trump helped by going after them, attacking them, threatening them. And so this is this inoculated them against charges that they were Trump Republicans. And that helped in those in those suburbs. But still, a lot of people showed up. and. They voted for Kemp because they liked Kemp. He was unfortunately popular. And um, vote a straight ticket. All right, we'll vote for the Republican. But they came out for Kemp. They did not come out for Walker. Are they going to come out for Walker? And I suspect that they're not going to come out for Walker. Right? And um, we saw this two years ago where Democrats dramatically outperformed Republicans in the runoff election. And uh, I don't see anything again in the data. I don't see anything that suggests that this year is any different. In fact, it might even be bigger. Yeah, because it's record turnout, early voting. I was there, I think Monday and Tuesday, 
was in a few spots. Um, and just Walker's a god awful candidate. I mean, candidate quality matters. And and uh, two years ago, Republicans had decent candidates, right? They were they were an incumbent senator, Loeffler, Kelly Kelly. It was Kelly Loeffler, right? Yeah. And uh, and then uh, the other guy was the congressman who, you know, so these guys were not fringe. MAGA nut candidates, I mean, they were they were they were awful in their own way, but they were Herschel Walker is like another level. Like he is next level awful. I had a we were out in the streets in Clayton County, Georgia. I was with Black Voters Matter, and we're out in the, on the intersections holding up the signs, giving people information about early voting, giving out free Black Voters Matter t-shirts, just telling people to vote. Uh, and Black Voters Matter, just for the record, is not partisan. But a, a motorist pulls up at the intersection where I am and decides to engage me on a partisan level. He said, I'm not voting, he shouts out, I'm not voting for a Raphael Warnock because he's a hypocrite. I said, why is he a hypocrite, sir? Uh, and he said, um, because he's for abortions. And I said, Herschel Walker has paid for abortions. Well, that's different. That was 40 years ago. It wasn't even 40 years ago. You know, and then Black Voters Matter came to get me and said, Mark, you really shouldn't be in a partisan debate. You know, I was about to snatch a dude out the car, but I, they, they called me. <laughs> Glad you did. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, uh, and he's giving me the thing and just, I think he even had a Confederate flag. But, um, yeah, we can't have Herschel Walker in the Senate. That 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 can't happen under any circumstances. Um, so yeah, this is an important election, and we've got the majority anyway. But now here's the question: if 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 Warnock is reelected, what is it then? Fifty-one forty-nine. Fifty-one forty-nine. So does that does that math offset anything, Mansion and Cinema? If they decide to do what they've done in the past on any bill, what it does is in the past we needed both of them for anything. Now, as long as we peel one of them off, we can make it pass. And there's, it's not like they have some kind of alliance where they where they work in concert together. They've always had their own individual agendas. And so every time we've needed their votes, they, we've had to cut separate deals with them. And um, that's now we only have to cut, you know, now I guess we pick the one that's least objectionable and uh and cut that deal and mark it's also 51 is important because the map in uh two years is brutal for us like there's there's nothing our best pickup opportunities are like ted cruz in texas and uh in florida these are not these are not you know quality pickup opportunities and you never know you know times change and and the political winds are fickle and i mean who knew arizona and georgia were going to be this this competitive you know six years ago. So things may happen, but generally speaking, it's, it's not a good map. We're defending seats like Sherrod Brown in Ohio and John Tester in Montana. We're defending really, really difficult seats and, um, in not in battleground states. It's one thing to defend our seats in states where we're investing heavily in voter turnout. I mean, there's a reason we did best in the battleground states. If you look at where we did well, right, we, we, we were going to win, the uh, Georgia Senate race runoff next week. We won in Arizona, almost swept the statewide elected offices. We only lost a superintendent of schools race, but we won secretary of state. We won governor. We won attorney general. Uh, we won the Senate race and uh, we crushed it in Michigan. We held on to the statewide. We lost the Senate race in Wisconsin, but we 
held on to the governorship in Wisconsin. Uh, we crushed it in, in Pennsylvania. We won the Senate, the governor, and we actually took control of the state house. I mean, there, these are in a year where Democrats are supposed to do poorly because of the party in power. The fact that we actually gained in battleground states just shows to the amount of investment that the party and the state parties and people have made in those battleground states. We underperformed in California. We underperformed in, uh, in New York. We got crushed in, in, uh, in Florida. We underperformed in Texas. So really, we now, you know, I can confidently say we have a strong enough organization in battleground states where it looks good for our presidential chances in 2024. What we didn't prove is that we could actually compete in non-presidential states. And that's where most of these Senate battlegrounds are going to be. And most of them are Democratic held. So the, if we 51 seats, it's important. It's important because it one, it minimizes the influence of Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. Two, we don't have 50-50 committees anymore. With a 50-50 Senate, the committees were 50-50, making it harder to get stuff out of committees. We don't have that anymore. We're going to have a seat advantage in all the committees in the Senate. But three, if we lose, that gives us a cushion. We can lose two seats in 2024 and still keep control of the Senate. And it'll be tight, but given how we defended all our seats this time, some of them in tough states, gives me hope that we can actually, in a better year, in a presidential year, we can actually defend our, our Democratic seats. But we have some cushion now. So, so we get to 51. So what happens, and, and one of the headlines on, on Daily Coast right now is, is uh, well, I'll read it to you. We know the perfect candidate to primary cinema. We just need to convince him to run. And of course, talking about Ruben Gallego, um, what's the status of that? And what about Manson? What's he going to do? Is he going to run again? I guess he is, but there was some speculation. Mm -hmm. might, well, he might, I mean, you think he'll go ahead and switch party? No. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think he'll switch parties. He's had every opportunity to switch parties. He's pro labor union. He's um, he's he's voted with us on a lot of things that that just don't work for Republicans. And I mean, there'd be almost a little bit of poetic justice in him making, you know, being a pain in the ass for the Republicans. <laughs> he's been a pain in the ass for us. I mean, you can see him like voting with Democrats on certain issues and abandoning. You know, so he's not he, he would be that pain in the ass no matter where, where he lands. I think that's what he likes to be. He just likes to be the center of attention. Um. All suggestions are right now is that he's running again, and he's been enough of a pain that maybe maybe it's good enough for him to survive. But remember, this is a what forty point Trump state. I mean, this is not a this is not a a state that should have a Democratic senator at all. So I'm I'm hoping he runs again. I'm hoping he pulls it off. There's literally nobody else in the world that has a remote chance of holding that seat for us. So. Um, Unfortunately, he's he's all we got. But this is, you know, always playing a long game. 2024 looks terrible for us. I mean, there may be a master stroke of luck. Maybe Republicans implode to a point. There's a scenario where where Donald Trump goes against DeSantis, loses the primary, and then tells his people not to vote in November. I mean, that's that's a real possibility. There's no scenario where a loser Trump place nice with with you know does the party unity thing in a general election right so what happens if donald trump 
And, you know, 20% of Republicans are, are Trump dead enders. What if they stay home in November? Suddenly, maybe we win seats in Texas. Maybe Ted Cruz is gone. Like, there, there's, there's a scenario where crazy stuff may happen. And so I don't want to completely preclude it, but let's, let's move ahead to 2026. I mean, the map looks better for us in 2026. Maybe that's when we're able to pick up that extra Senate seat. And now we have a filibuster-proof majority. Now we can get rid of the filibuster. We have a Democratic House. Things move forward. So there, there's, we got we to gotta plan towards that point, right? So 2024 in the Senate, it's all about holding our ground. It's about picking up the House, about holding our ground in the Senate and holding the, the White House and then taking it from there. And got to say, Mark, the fact that we did as well as we did this year, the fact that the youth turnout was as high as it was, the fact that our new voter registration numbers were as high as they were and that those people voted all bodes very, very well for us moving into 2024. If I'm the Republicans, I am, I am freaking out right now. Yeah, if, if you're really serious about winning, if you want to do math and win. We've heard that, you know, even today that some of them want to do something to bring in more minorities and what have you. Lastly, a, a little bit, Again, another moving to another subject, but I, we haven't talked about this, I don't think, and I haven't gotten your thoughts on it. Elon Musk and Twitter. What, what are your mm -hmm. thoughts about the state of Twitter and what's happening there? What might happen? And mm -hmm. do we? Is, I mean, need, is it time for it to go away? Or I mean, would you be? Glad no, to see I mean, there, there's nothing like Twitter, and there's nothing that brings in this many people from so many different walks of life. I'm not interested in in coming up with a new echo chamber you know, Mastodon or whatever, where it's just a bunch of liberals talking to each other. And I'm not saying that's bad. I mean, it's a church analogy. Like if talking, you know, if preaching to the choir is bad, then we wouldn't need churches, right? Preaching to the choir is fine. Like I'm, I'm personally not interested in that because I'm looking at the broader battle of how do we influence reporters to cover things right. And I think Twitter was absolutely critical in pushing back against the red wave narrative. And we killed it. We killed it in the summer. Like they were, they were done in the summer. It was a lot of people pointing out the special elections. And, you know, if it's a red wave, why are we, why are we overperforming in special elections? Why are we winning special elections? And um, it came back in the end because there was this flood of Republican polls, right? And people like Nate Silver were, were very invested in the red wave narrative. So, but there was strong, strong pushback. It wasn't, and that would not exist without Twitter. Without Twitter, it would have been red wave narrative the entire summer into the fall. And then our side would have thought it was a hopeless cause. And, and already, I think that red wave narrative hurt our, our um, engagement. It may have cost us the House. And so an entire summer of Democrats are going to lose would have, would have been disastrous. So without Twitter, that's what happens. So I'm not interested in Twitter going away. Now, Musk is doing everything impossible to make it an insufferable place. He's definitely alienating advertisers. He's not going to make it up with subscription revenue. He doesn't know what he's doing. Um, the myth of Musk as a brilliant, I don't know, CEO has been shattered. He, he's, he's a dumbass. And so what I suspect is going to happen is that he'll you know, give it another month or two, he'll get bored. And either he will put a CEO who actually is interested in trying to make it work. And that's going to require going back to strong moderation and doing the things they need to do to get those advertisers and to be 
not to be kicked out of the Google Play and the and the Apple App Store. Or he may just even sell it at a loss and just walk away. He's got money. He don't give a shit. But it's it's what people don't serve. I think the piece that people don't don't realize, and it's what's going to be his downfall, is that Tesla's audience, his market, are rich liberals. You find you go to San Francisco, you go to New York City, you go to here in Berkeley, down to that's who buys Teslas. You you don't go to Alabama and see Teslas. You don't go to Texas and see very many Teslas outside of Austin. Conservatives don't buy Teslas because they want they want to roll coal, right? It's, the idea of an electric car is actually it's actually insulting to them. So Musk is alienating his core, um, the core buyers of the product that is actually the source of his wealth, which is Tesla stock. And Tesla stock is getting hammered. So at some point, there's going to be a real push from Tesla stakeholders and the board to either oust him or to muzzle him. And I don't think you can muzzle Musk. So he may at that point realize like the t this this Twitter thing is just really really undermining him, and uh, and um, it may be time to cut that loose. And the other piece is SpaceX defense on its revenues, one hundred percent government contracts, and so you're sitting there antagonizing elected officials and government officials, and and if you're going to go full MAGA, then you're antagonizing the Biden administration and people who are going to make decisions based on who gets those contracts, and so. You know, Jeff Bezos on the other side, he's salivating. He's, he's rubbing his hands in glee seeing Musk make himself toxic. And so when it's time for SpaceX to, to get the next contract, the issue will be, won't be, can SpaceX deliver? It's going to be Elon Musk is, an, is, is just crazy. And, uh, and can we trust him to do anything? I don't think we can. All good points. Severs with a Q, dailycoast.com, of course. Also, download the brief wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with everything that's going on, as always, as uh, we get ready in this last month of the year. And get ready for a new Congress and, I guess, somewhat of a new Senate with an extra seat. Hopefully, by the next time we'll talk, we will have that extra seat. Yep. Those of you who have friends, family, loved ones in Georgia, Lord have mercy, send them out today. To yep. really vote. Do yep. not hesitate. That is absolutely urgent. We cannot have um, Herschel Walker in. I got, I, I, I got a little bit more trouble with nonpartisan Black voters matter too. I was, I was misbehaving, Marcos. <laughs> I, I, you were, you were to the I, letter. I should have texted you this. I didn't see the tweet, but it went viral. I started chant, um, vote in the election not the erection. And <laughs> we were in a Walmart parking lot, you know, meeting people, said, vote in the election, not the erection. Because uh, Herschel's trying to win the erection. No, we need Raphael to win the election, y'all. So, so if you and Mark, I want to stress this, because we talked about this before the main election, is the single most important thing anybody can do to win, to win these elections is to vote early. And the reason it's important to vote early is because you have get out the vote operation that's going to be inact. It's going to be fully active on election day. They're going to have lists of voters that have not voted, and the more names are on that list, the less they're going to be able to go down that list. So if you, so if you're in Georgia, you vote. You don't want anybody wasting their time trying to call you, knocking on your door, trying to drive you to the polls. 
Like you want those people focused on those who may not vote. So that's why voting early is a critical piece. And, uh, and you see Republicans now, they're saying that, and there's, you know, about Arizona, about Pennsylvania, uh, about Michigan, is that they screwed themselves by pushing everybody to vote election day because that, what that means is that their get-out-the-vote operation has to get everybody out to vote. Our teams could focus on the last 20, 30% that hadn't gone out yet. And it worked. So let's do it again in Georgia. Let's do it again. Thanks, Marcos. Thank you so much. Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain. As always, perform an act of kindness on behalf of an elder or young person. Write a letter to a sister brother who just so happens to find her or himself incarcerated. Offer libations to the ancestors upon whose sturdy shoulders we all now stand. And above all, give thanks to the God of your understanding by whatever name you call her and him. All God asks of us is that we give each other love. Thanks for giving MIP love. And please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star rating. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been made plain.